0: Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. One year after Dobbs. June 24th marks a year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and returned the debate on abortion to the states. We feature Jeannie Mancini of the March for Life and Marjorie Dannenfelser of Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America. Our nation's leaders on life. We touch base with EWTN correspondents Eric Rosales and Owen Jensen to recap year one without Roe. They provide in-the-moment coverage from the halls of Congress and the White House on the abortion debate. Who are the movers and shakers on the Hill? What comes next on the Biden administration's pro-abortion agenda? What should Catholics be on the lookout for moving forward? These two have the answers. Looking back at the leak, how the high-profile leak of the Dobbs decision continues to shape public perception of the High Court. We're joined by Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network to discuss the leak and how it has impacted public opinion on abortion. This year marks the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the landmark case that overturned Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Cheers and jeers erupted outside the Supreme Court as the Dobbs decision was announced. In his majority opinion, Justice Samuel Alito concluded that Roe v. Wade was egregiously wrong from the start. The opinion set off pro-life trigger laws in a handful of states, saving almost 20,000 babies from legal abortion thus far. Here on Capitol Hill, the overturn of Roe led to a flurry of activity among members of Congress, with Democrats vowing to bring Roe back and codify its provisions into law. The Roe decision is what led to the United States becoming one of just seven nations worldwide that allow for abortion on demand up to the moment of birth. President Joe Biden and his administration have also made vows to expand abortion, going against the teachings of his self-proclaimed Catholic faith. In the coming days leading up to the anniversary of the Dobbs decision, which ended Roe, President Biden's White House is hosting a series of events where he's likely to decry that decision. He and Vice President Kamala Harris will take part in an event hosted by the Democratic National Convention featuring three wildly pro-abortion groups, Emily's List, NARAL, and Planned Parenthood. First Lady Jill Biden hosted a roundtable discussion about abortion at the White House. And Vice President Harris will also give a major speech on abortion in North Carolina, a key swing state. Joining me now for analysis are two of my colleagues here at EWTN, White House correspondent Owen Jensen and Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales Jentz. Thanks for being here. Owen, let's first give our viewers some insight into what you're doing every day from the White House lawn. Take a look.
1: Last
2: night
0: you Why do you
1: support abortion as a well, I, church, well, I tell you what. I don't want to get in a debate with you on theology, but you know well anyway.
2: Mr.
3: I'm,
1: Mr. I'm, Mr. I'm, Mr. I'm I'm not Mr. President, should there be any restric- should there be any restrictions on abortion at all? Any restrictions on abortion at all? Uh, yes there should be. What should they be? In Roe v. Wade. Read it, man. You're educated. We do believe Catholic hospitals and Catholic doctors should be forced to perform abortions or transgender surgeries against their conscience. We'll continue to make sure that every provider, hospital,
2: healthcare center, continues to provide every American with the care that they're entitled to under the law.
0: Owen, oh, you encounter moments like this all the time with President Biden, his cabinet, and his press secretaries. So talk to us about how the president has positioned himself on abortion and other matters pertaining to family and our faith over the past year.
1: Prudence, good to see you. Since the Dobbs decision came down, this, uh, this administration has been full bore going out full-bore in support of abortion. i got to keep a running list here just to keep track of it. Uh, Number one, sending the vice president out, Kamala Harris, around the country holding what they call reproductive rights roundtables, Mm. Uh, their support for the the abortion drug Mifepristone, constantly slamming the Supreme Court over the Dobbs ruling, criticizing uh, pro-life measures passed in states across the country, demanding Congress codify Roe v. v Wade, and on and on. In fact, Mm. the president just last month wrote, in a proclamation wrote, quote, in part, my administration will continue to defend access to medication abortion, and I will also continue to call on the Congress to restore the protections of Roe v. Wade in federal law, which would secure the right to choose once and for all. That's just a summary of it right there, Prudence.
0: Wow, wow. And, Owen, we know that Vice President Kamala Harris, First Lady Joe Biden, and the president himself are all hosting events and sharing remarks this coming weekend as we celebrate the overturn of Roe v. Wade. So what can we expect in the days to come? And... and in terms of their message, especially, what do you think is down the pike?
1: Oh, well, you can expect more of the same for sure in the 18 months leading up to the election in 2024. They're going to be out there hammering away at this. And I think one thing you're really going to see is this constant and heavy criticism of pro-life measures being passed, again, in the states around the country. Every time one is passed, for example, that 12-week measure in North Carolina, every time a pro-life measure is passed, they come out swinging hard, the White House, condemning it, criticizing it those measures extreme so I think you're going to see a lot of that feeding into their narrative heading into 2024 essentially uh, sizing up or lining up uh, pro-abortion voters versus pro-life voters
0: sure sure very helpful Owen and and Eric I want to turn to you now from your exciting perch on the hill you've reported on the first March for Life post row the first pro-life laws that have been introduced in this new climate so how have things changed on the hill in this year
2: Oh, it's great to be with you, Prudence, you know, since the overturning of Roe, almost weekly we're seeing bills being introduced by Democrats that literally chip away at the decision just this week leading up to the Dobbs decision. House Democrats, though, while they're trying to force a vote on the Women's Health Protection Act. That would allow for basically abortion on demand. And, meanwhile, in the Senate, Washington Senator Patty Murray, well, she's trying to get a series of bills passed, everything from codifying the right to birth control to allowing women to be able to travel across state lines to get an abortion and legally shield doctors from uh, who perform abortions from any sort of legal ramifications, you know, and uh, press conferences are being held all the time. One was just a few weeks ago where they want to make abortion the on-demand, the law of the land. You know, uh, Democrats tell me that they believe that a child doesn't have any rights until after it's born. Take a listen.
3: I would say that the people who have rights are the ones who whose body are being affected. So again, a private medical decision. And if people are talking about being pro-life, then that life should happen too after the child is born.
2: Eric Rosales with EWTN News nightly, the Global Catholic Network. Senator Lindsey Graham has come up with a 15-week abortion ban as a proposal. Is that something, any sort of time compromise that you'd be willing to accept?
4: No. Um, I mean, the, you know, this is a this is a slippery slope. This is what we are hearing. Oh, well, maybe we'll just do it this way, this way, this way. And yet we have three-week. Um, uh, laws that are being passed around so if uh, if they want to sit down and restore Roe v Wade and make sure that we're uh, providing abortions to all who are um, would be eligible under that rule that is the, the thing that we would support
2: right now basically the issue will never be voted on in the Republican-controlled house to become law but it's more of a messaging bill for Democrats that they're going to be using in the upcoming 2024 election Prudence.
0: Thank you so much, Eric, for sharing that. It's crazy what we're up against on the Hill. And, gentlemen, I want to hear from both of you. Just one final question before I let you go. What does it mean to you to be providing the Catholic perspective on these issues? Uh, On the Hill and in the White House, you know, sometimes you're the only ones providing that perspective. Owen, I want to first hear from you on this.
1: Well, Prudence, it's a privilege, really, just simple as that. It's a privilege and an honor to go to bat, as they say every day, asking questions. Uh, here at the White House on matters that uh, are very critical to our Catholic audience, whether they're life issues, religious freedom, conscience rights, and on and on. So, uh, really, just an honor. And I thank our audience for allowing us, putting us in the position here to ask those questions. And, by the way, Prudence, keep up the great work on your show.
0: Thank you so much, Owen. I know we all share that sentiment. So much thanks for our viewers, Eric.
2: Oh, I have to tell you, Prudence, it is a great honor. You know, I'm constantly encouraged by the pro-life lawmakers that are up here, and many of them are greatest sources, that they tip us off on information and and let us know of different legislation that's coming up. But it's a two-way street. We've actually been able to inform some of these pro-life lawmakers about uh, conscious protections and abortion and religious liberties and things like that that are up in bills. You know, they, they receive so many bills on their desks that they don't have time to often read them. All, but we're over here constantly reading them as well, and we're we're letting them know of the legislation that that you know not only just Catholics are against, but just believers in 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 our Lord and Savior that are against. So it's a it truly is a great honor and to be able to have access with these lawmakers and give them a different perspective that they may not be able to realize uh, when they're when they're up here and you know, make them aware of situations and possibly, uh, you know, in some way, it's, it's a mission as well. And it's a great honor to be up here for EWTN.
0: It absolutely is a mission. And it's an honor to be working hard alongside both of you. Thank you so much for joining us, Owen and Eric, for this helpful recap.
2: God bless. Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Now, a year out from the Dobbs decision, here's where we stand on state laws to protect life. Exactly half of states have advanced laws to ban most abortions. Eight of those states' laws have been blocked by federal judges, influenced by pro-abortion groups. Ten of these states' laws, marked in red, include an exception that allows for abortion if the mother's life is at risk. Four of these states, marked in yellow, allow for exceptions for rape and incest. Four states in orange have placed various gestational limits on abortion from six weeks in Georgia to 20 weeks in North Carolina. The other 25 states still allow for abortion on demand with no limits. Pro-life advocates also saw numerous defeats at the state level in the midterms with failed ballot initiatives in Kansas, Michigan, Kentucky and California. So to sum up, after a year, our nation is split down the middle. We are joined now by 2 longtime leaders in defending life, Jeannie Mancini, president of the March for Life, and Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. Ladies, it's so great to see you. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me.
4: Hello. Thanks for having us. Hi, Jeannie.
0: Jeannie, let's talk about the first March for Life after Roe to kick us off. What was that like for you? How was that experience? Oh,
3: my gosh. It was incredible. So that was the 50th March for Life. And here over the years, we've begun the longest, uh, largest human rights demonstration worldwide every year. And so to absolutely celebrate that with the overturn of Roe was incredible. I think there was also a little bit of confusion about even what Roe meant and if there was still a need to march. Uh, and it thankfully, we had A huge crowd, maybe the biggest ever for this march, and the joy and the enthusiasm of our marchers was really unparalleled to any other march, I think, in the victory of the Overturn of Roe.
0: Yes, and it was an honor to report on that here from our studio as well. They came out in troves. The people really did. And Marjorie, talk to me about the day the Dobbs decision came down from your perspective. We saw states that very day enact laws to limit and even ban abortion in some cases. And I know your team was working hard behind the scenes leading up to that point.
4: That's true, that for many months we'd been working with governors, AGs, legislators, um, to help them and support them to be as ambitious in their communications and also in their acceptance of, uh, of what we believe was coming, but um, also to just plan, help them plan for uh, for what that how that will look unfolding in their own states. So it was a privilege to be able to do that work, but it and it is, as you know, it was ongoing. But I do want to add this one thing that because it was very special for our Susan B. Anthony um, Pro Life America team um who along with you all were working on this for so many years and every day we would get um gather either virtually or in person, to listen to what Supreme Court decisions were coming down. So every day we gather, no, it's not it. We hear all the cases that it wasn't Dobbs. And then finally, as you all know, on the very last day, on Friday uh, at or Thursday, 1010 10 in the morning on June 24th, uh, the decision came down and the whole Wi-Fi crashed. So we <laughs> were all bated breath, couldn't see it. And then the newest hire out of 100 employees here in the D.C. office was the one person that could actually get through and find it. And he yelled out, (laughs) Roe versus Wade is overturned. And it was just such a joyful, huge moment. The last thing I'm going to say is 10-10 in the morning is also John 1010. Mm. And John 1010 is the thief, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come to give life and to give it abundantly. There are so few accidents surrounding um, this moment. And I think the timing could not have been better. Absolutely, amen. And the fact that it was the feast of the Sacred Heart, I know as
0: two Catholic yeah. ladies, that was an amazing non-coincidental thing. Um, And Nellie Gray's
4: birthday, too. Uh, Oh, I know. Yes. Just
0: unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. (laughs) It was an unbelievable day. And and Marjorie, shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk to you about protections on the federal level, because we know that the majority of the battle is in the states, but the federal level is still so important, especially as we see emerging presidential candidates. Your reaction to how they've handled the debate around this um, around abortion thus
4: far? Well, the most visible debates, yes, are on the state level. But it's also true that we're getting to a place where most of the states that can act have mostly acted, not all. There are quite a number where we still have either judicial battles or some legislative battles. But it's going to be uh, it will be a battle to get uh, a lot over the half of the country that we have, because we're dealing with very difficult states. So sure. what do you what is the way to address that is that um, Every federal candidate, presidential on down federal uh, the lines, um, has to embrace a federal um, protection for unborn children um, so that states like California, Illinois, New York, etc. at least have some federal minimum standard established for what we in the United States of America want to stand for, uh, putting us in line potentially with the rest of the civilized world, 47 out of 15 nations in Europe limit abortion 15 weeks or, or less. And the majority of those limited at 12 weeks. So the idea that we would not have equal or bigger push on the federal level is not pro-life, and any candidate who says they don't have a job to do on this, Mm. many of them having already voted on on, uh, legislation that would limit abortion, um, cannot be supported by the pro-life movement. In other words, have a plan for the vision now that we're at the starting line, and make sure that you go and you you run that race until it's finished, and every single child in this country is protected, regardless of where they're conceived.
0: Mm -hmm. And, Marjorie, there's another piece of this debate that we're seeing. Play out that I would love to hear your thoughts on. We're tracking that some pro-life groups are calling for a personhood amendment, full protection for the unborn at all times, while others are work are working to enact gestational limits. Take it, take it one step at a time. How do you and the leaders that you're working with in Washington view this debate? What factors are developing your strategy?
4: Well, I think what's most important is what's best for the children, and the pro-life movement comes second, right? So I say all all both and or all and the legislative fix a uh, acknowledge what we believe is already in the Constitution. Um, their uh, human life amendment could is either redundant or it would just be a guarantee that we have life in America protected. So my view is I have no not only do I have no problem, I'm for advancing on all those fronts and where we get first. Um, When we start to have successes in any one of those, that means we're saving lives. There is no reason to hold out for everything, for a human life amendment, or hold out for national legislation. Uh, and fail to start protecting lives. Now, we do all of those things and make sure that we take it so seriously that we're not willing to leave any lives standing on that train track with a train coming. We save as many as we can at the moment that we're in and do the best that we can to make sure that we continue until all of them are saved.
0: Hmm. I appreciate your take on that. And Jeannie, your thoughts on the federal level, the battle there, you know, you have some exciting state marches coming up for the March for Life, but we know that the National March for Life always will continue to take place too,
3: yeah, absolutely. there has been just a little bit of confusion about what is the role of the federal government in this, and um, does it totally return to the states and so um I think as already has been articulated here in the last few minutes, there's definitely still a federal role for the uh, states like California and Michigan, etc, um at the March for life, what do we bring to the movement you know that's so important is we unite the grassroots through our marches, and so way before Roe was overturned, we had this dream of starting these state marches, our first being in 2019 in Virginia, my home state. And um, so this year, we're in eight different states. We've already had four of our state marches. In the fall, we'll have another four, including Ohio, where of course, we're facing this enormously important ballot initiative. We plan to double every single year if we have the resources until we're in all 50 states. And I think we can all agree that rallying at the states is all the more important these days now in a post-Roe world.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. And Jeannie, looking back to the very foundations of the March for Life, you know, people came here to Washington, D.C., and they went to their lawmakers' offices to talk to them about protecting the unborn. So how is that playing out now that these state marches are happening? How are state legislators getting involved in your efforts? Well,
3: they are very involved, so we always have state legislators speak, and we typically have some sort of activity where we're teaching marchers how to engage more proactively with their state legislators the day of the march. And then often there are office visits afterwards, so that's a very important component of what we do.
0: Mm. And Marjorie, I wanna ask you about the states too. You guys are so active in all of these states, working with these legislatures. What are the states to watch right now?
4: Well, I would uh, keep an eye on Virginia for sure, because Virginia um, is just a couple of uh, votes away from a a 15 week bill, which is, you know, we would hope to do better. But this is a very purple state. And so that's that's where we are now. So we'll we'll be very engaged in the Virginia elections this year, uh, hoping to get those extra handful of votes um, and then. Um, you know, the rest of the the rest of the states really are are like Iowa right now is really important. And I would put that at the top of the list because the their Supreme Court just knocked down their heartbeat bill. So the legislature, which is extremely pro-life and we have one of the best governors in the nation in Kim Reynolds, is having to start over. They're going to redo that legislation. They're going to hopefully have a special session and try again. Um, So this leads, as you well know, Prudence, to the problem that we have in a lot of the states is is a judicial problem, is the courts themselves, Mm -hmm. how those judges are appointed in some of these states is the biggest problem that we're facing in many of them. And so part of this reform is judicial reform uh, and changing the method, because often these judges are appointed. Um, and a lot of these states by uh, a list that's uh, affirmed by the ABA, the American Bar Association, which is notoriously liberal and, and awful. And, it's the, and it limits the governor and his ability or the, or the voters and their ability to vote in a, um, uh, a judge that actually um, uh, is, has fealty to their state constitution. So anyway, that's a long answer, but it is, but it is multifaceted. And there is no, as Jeannie just said, there's no way we relent. States where we have succeeded, we stay, we're vigilant. We make sure that they know we were never going away. And we we make sure that we grow the pro-life movement until the whole country. We don't even have to call it a movement anymore. We're just who we are, just like every other human rights battle we've won. We've just become a better nation for it
0: exactly well we have celebrated so many victories since the overturn of roe and i know god willing you know he is the victor and there'll be many more to come many thanks to the work that you both do so thank you so much marjorie dannenfelser and jeannie mancini for joining us today god bless you we're praying for you looking back at the leak how the high profile leak changed america's perception of the courts and the battle over abortion You're watching EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Welcome back to our special coverage of the anniversary of the Dobbs decision. Before we celebrate this anniversary in a few days, it's worth taking a look back at the leak. On May 2nd of last year, someone presumably inside the U.S. Supreme Court leaked Justice Samuel Alito's majority opinion in the Dobbs decision to the press before its official release. The effect? Americans knew that Roe v. Wade was done for over a month before the court planned to announce it. The high-profile breach was unlike anything the court had seen before, and it left Americans questioning the court's credibility. The leak spurred protests across the country, vandalism at pro-life pregnancy centers and even death threats against the justices. A lengthy investigation was launched to try and uncover who leaked the document. The probe came up empty-handed, but Justice Alito said in a recent interview that he has a pretty good idea of who leaked the draft. To unpack exactly how the Dobbs leak impacted America's perception of the courts, I recently spoke to legal expert Carrie Severino. Carrie Severino, president of the Judicial Crisis Network, joins us now. Carrie, thank you so much for being with us. I want to kick things off by just asking you, in your opinion, how did the leak impact Americans' perception of the Supreme Court?
5: Yeah, unfortunately, I think while the leak didn't change the outcome of the decision, and that's something that I think we can all celebrate, that we have justices that stood up to this pressure tactic uh, to try to change the outcome, that didn't happen. But it has really affected uh, the way the justices are talked about. I think that's the leak was really just the beginning of what we've seen a long campaign of. Of intimidation and bullying efforts at the court. So it means people going to their houses. It means people doxing even their churches and where their kids go to school, you know, these kind of implicit and sometimes very explicit threats against the justices' safety and that of their families. But people are jumping onto that and just dovetailing with it in other ways. People in the media, people in activist groups in the left, who have been trying to portray the court as somehow illegitimate, Mm. as somehow corrupt, trying to make up fake ethics scandals, anything they can do to intimidate and bully the justices, hoping, of course, that that the justices don't continue to make bold decisions that are just hewing to the Constitution
0: and nothing else uh, like they did in Dobbs. Yeah, and it's so unfortunate that they would go so far as to put these people and their families in danger. Carrie, talk to me a little bit about the lower courts and and how this has potentially impacted the court system as a whole. You know, we're seeing lots of action on the abortion pill in the Fifth Circuit and so many different cases related to abortion making their way through the courts. So take this one step further for me.
5: Yeah, well, obviously, by getting the Supreme Court... Out of this business by saying look this isn't A constitutional question this is Something that needs to be dealt with in the states That opens the door to a lot of different legislation at the states and uh, Litigation in different areas So it doesn't mean it's the end of Courts having to deal with this question because now you Have lots of states and particularly State courts who are now making these Decisions saying okay the federal Constitution doesn't speak to this what do our state Laws say you have some states that Are going in a really bad direction I think and basically inventing. Their own little mini rows, mm. um, and saying well, our state constitution, even though it's not in the text, uh, we think it should have this, and so we're going to make this up. That's a, a really dangerous direction. You also have federal cases uh, that are addressing these issues. You mentioned uh, the, the Mifepristone case, the abortion pill case, and I think there, one of the big concerns I have is seeing that kind of intimidation that we talked about of the Supreme Court justices sure. it, going against the lower courts and trying to delegitimize these decisions rather than look at them and just say, okay, Okay, let's have this argument on a legal level. It's trying to go after ad hominems against the judge or really misrepresenting the opinion uh, in, in
0: ways that are, are totally unfair. Yeah, you bring up a good point with those mini rows. That's something that in ballot initiatives and in the elections, voters need to look out yeah. for. Carrie, um, I want to talk about the moment that the leak was leaked um, last year. Do you think that it escalated tension? When it comes to the decision and really just the public debate on abortion in general?
5: Oh, absolutely. And that seems to be what it was designed to do. Because mm-hmm. remember, instead of just having. You know, the decision come out around this time of the year. You know, we expected it would come out in June. It did. It came out on June 24th. Instead of just having people respond to it at the time, that started in May, a drumbeat of people protesting, again, at the houses, at the court, everything leading up to it. And it just gave a, a spotlight on that much longer. Um, obviously, it's an important issue. Obviously, it's one we, we that is worth talking about as a nation. But I think it turned it into a very uh, damaging approach the way that it was done in a let's try to shift the court's opinion rather than let's try to you know read and respond to the opinion the time Mm. for for influencing the court is when you're filing briefs and making the oral arguments but that happened back in december i think this was giving us the idea that we influence the court by trying to pressure the justices personally and that's
0: not how things should work in a rule of law Mm. Mm, That's really helpful insight. And, Carrie, we're gearing up for an election season, as I mentioned. And I'm just curious, from your point of view, if a Republican were to take office, would that change the way the court leans in the next couple of years? What do you anticipate might happen? Should we see change um, in the White House?
5: Yeah, well, I think we can't overstate the significance of the president's judicial nominating role in terms of his long-term impact. Part of the, you know, the the main reason that we have Dobbs today is because of those key uh, judicial nominations that President Trump was able to make. And the reason that we have some of these cases being decided correctly at the lower federal courts, uh, like the Texas case we talked about, et cetera, is because we have Principal judges who were put in place uh, in the last administration. The next administration is going to be just as important. Uh, there's no vacancies in the Supreme Court right now, so that's uh, good, right? But there could be at any point. Right. Um, and it's not just the Supreme Court. Remember, all of the lower level. Courts at the at the federal level are going to be addressing a lot of these issues as well, and so those nominations, of course, are for life. These are people who will have a generational impact, and they are also going to be the people who will be the shortlist for future Supreme Court vacancies. So the next president will very easily have Supreme Court seats to fill, as well as circuit court and district court judge judgeships
0: that are crucial to maintaining our constitutional structure. Mm. It's so important to keep track of the whole legal court system and how it will be impacted. So I appreciate all of your expertise on that. Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. We continue our coverage of the Dobbs anniversary next week with a special look at a pro-life rally commemorating the end of Roe and Casey. In the meantime, you can find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. Or send us a message by emailing prolifeweekly@ewtn.com. at EWTN.com. We love to hear from you. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.